Good morning. Let's pray. God, as we again dive into your word, as we take uh, these next minutes here to enter into scripture, to the words of your apostle, uh, to words that we believe have been breathed into by your Holy Spirit, we pray uh, that we will be able to see with your eyes, that we will be able to hear with your ears, that we will understand the significance, the importance, the foundational nature of what we are stepping into here. That, that this won't be some extra that we layer on top of our lives, but that as we talk about what you have done for us, God, that these will become things that sit at the very core of who we are, that shape everything that comes afterwards. Be with us. In your name, amen. Growing up, uh, I was, am, the oldest of six siblings. And, uh, and when we, I was younger, maybe 11 or 12, uh, my parents... Uh, started to leave us all at home alone. I was old enough to be babysitting, and so me and my five younger siblings would be at home, and I was designated, of course, as the one in charge. And I took that responsibility seriously, probably too seriously. I think my siblings were often quite annoyed at how seriously I took that responsibility. And I made it my goal that whatever was going to happen, I was going to respond to it in a calm and measured and responsible way. I was the eldest child. I was the responsible one. And, and one of these times, one of the first times that my parents were away, they were over actually at my uncle and aunt's place a few miles down the road. And we were baking something in the oven. I think it was brownies. I'm not sure what got into our heads as a bunch of kids, 12 and younger, to try and bake a pan of brownies while mom and dad were gone. But we did. And we had filled this pan up with batter and we put it in the oven and it was baking away and it was rising up and then to our horror it began spilling out over uh, the sides of the pan onto the bottom element and once it hit that bottom element it started to sizzle and then smoke and then burst into flame and now here I was the one responsible and I had no idea what to do there was panic and chaos in the house the whole house was clearly going to burn down and so I quickly went and I called my uncle and my aunt's house to get a hold of my parents. And I got their answering machine. And so I left a message. A message that was kept for years after this incident. The tape from that message persevered. It was kept carefully. The idea of messages on a tape in an answering machine is going to make no sense to anybody here under 25. But this is what happened. And for all I know, that tape still exists somewhere in a box of 12-year-old me saying in a calm voice with chaos in the background, Hello, this is Jesse Penner, son of Bruce and Kim. There is an emergency that needs immediate attention. The oven is on fire. I repeat, the oven is on fire. Please call back at your earliest convenience. To be clear, the house did not burn down. 
The fire put itself out in the oven after a minute or two with the door closed. The brownies were ruined. Hold on to that story in your heads for a little bit. We're going to get back to it. I promise. Today we are starting a trip through the book of Galatians. I've had it in the back of my mind uh, that I'd love to preach through this book for a long time. And we have this nice pocket here between Thanksgiving and Advent where we can finally walk through uh, the book of Galatians together. It's a powerful and beloved book that packs a real punch. Uh, For Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, this book was a key part of his spiritual reawakening, of, of the fact that he realized some things needed to change in his own life and in his relationship with God, uh, an understanding of the fact that we are justified not by our works, but by faith. It's a huge part of the book of Galatians. It was Martin Luther's favorite book, in fact, in all of Scripture. He jokingly referred to the book as his wife, and he preached on it often. Galatians is home to many memory verses, many powerful encouragements. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Incredible. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One of Paul's favorite themes that he comes back to again and again and here in Galatians. Powerful truth. Galatians 4, 6-7, because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child. And since you are a child, God has also made you an heir. Unbelievable promise. And there are other verses, certainly for some of you, that will pop up in your heads as you think about Galatians. It's a book that speaks so powerfully and beautifully about the freedom that we have in Christ, about the fruit of the Spirit, about the saving power of the cross, and that's stuff that I'm excited to get into. For the most part, that's what gets me excited about this book, but before we get to some of those verses, we need to start this thing. And today we are starting the book of Galatians, looking at chapter 1, and chapter 1 is a tough chapter. Chapter 1 carries, in some ways, a very different tone uh, than some of these well-known soaring statements of hope that come in Galatians. It's a bit of a tough slog that I'm hoping that you can take with me, but it's important context for everything that comes after. I don't think we can skip this chapter and fully understand the book of Galatians. So a little bit of background here to this book. Paul has recently completed a wide-ranging missionary journey, a journey that you can read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Paul and Barnabas and others, they go on a missionary journey and they plant churches and they start in some Jewish areas and they end up heading into the Gentile regions of that area through what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, through this region of Galatia. And unlike a lot of other letters that Paul writes, which are addressed to specific cities, Galatia is a wider region, and this church is addressed to the churches in this region of uh, Galatia, a network of fairly fresh church plants uh, over this area. Paul, not too long ago, was with this group. He was going around through these churches, but now he gets back to Jerusalem, which you can read about in Acts chapter 15, and he receives word that there are Jewish Christians who have followed after them in this area and started to put extra requirements over top 
of the gospel that Paul is preaching. One of the primary, one of the biggest concerns that they have is that they are saying that circumcision is a requirement for believers there in order to be fully saved. Now, circumcision is a tricky uh, topic to get into. I'm not going to go into detail, but we do have a new pastor with us, <laughs> Dion, who's eager to help out in whatever way that he can find ways to get involved in all aspects of ministry. He's a ministry. He's, he's a wise person. And so I want to encourage you that if you do have questions about circumcision, approach him after the service and he can certainly walk you through anything that you're wondering at all about that process. Uh, we're not going to get into it from the pulpit here. My point is this. Paul hears that this is going on and he recognizes it as a distortion of the gospel and fire alarms are going off in his head. This is a crisis. Let's head back to my oven story. The, the reason that that answering machine message has been played over and over again in my family, the reason that I remember this 20 years later, the reason it makes us laugh is because my reaction to that situation is so out of step with what is happening, the reality of the situation. As far as I knew, the house was burning down, but I leave a message that sounds like maybe somebody's missed their dentist appointment. And these two things don't match up. Paul, in the midst of a crisis, he starts writing this letter, and there is no mistaking where his heart is at. He is passionate. More than passionate, he is angry. And the tone here matches the importance of the message that he brings. You're all by now, I think, used to my normal preaching rhythms. I get up here, I say good morning, I pray. I open up often with some story or joke or culturally relevant thing in order to begin kind of teasing out the themes for the morning. I give a little bit of background context to what we're getting into, and then we kind of dive into the scripture. And now some of you are going to be making a mental checklist every single time that I preach. But you sort of understand how a sermon tends to feel from me. Paul had a rhythm to the way that he would open his letters. A very familiar rhythm. You can see it through all of his books. He makes a greeting. He has a little prayer for grace and her peace. And he gives thanks to God for the church. And then he kind of gets into the meat of his letter. That's his rhythm. And you can see this thankfulness at the beginning of his other letters. Uh, Romans 1 verse 8 says, Let me first say that I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith in him is being talked about all over the world. Philippians 1.3, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 4, I'm skipping over a few of them here, but, but he says, I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Uh, and let's be clear, the Corinthian church was a big mess. There was a lot of tough stuff that Paul was going to have to untangle in that letter. A lot of really difficult, really heavy things. But he still starts out saying, I'm thankful for you. Here in this letter, written by Paul's own hand, or most of it, I guess, is, is probably dictated by Paul to a scribe. I can just picture Paul pacing up and down the room with a scribe desperately trying to keep up. There's no space for niceties, or pleasantries, or the regular format. Here in this letter, it's clear. Something is seriously, dangerously 
wrong. Something has gone off the rails and there's no time to waste. Sound the alarm. It needs to be addressed now. This is how he starts. The letter is from Paul, an apostle. I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. That word apostle carried with it some weight. Apostles were men who were directly called by Christ. We often struggle with news these days because it's never quite clear what to believe. It's never quite clear what the sources are. You can read a convincing article on just about anything. You can find news that will spin things one way or another. But the question we need to ask to be discerning when we're interacting with news is what's the source? Right? Where is this information actually coming from? There's a movie I watched years ago called Thank You for Smoking about a tobacco lobbyist who was fighting on behalf of large cigarette and tobacco companies. And he would go around and he'd present all these studies that were done in-house, talking about how safe tobacco is and how it's actually got health benefits. It's good for you. But every single one of these were, were, were done, were studies that were created by researchers who were paid for and employed for and incentivized by big tobacco. So it doesn't really matter what they say. You can't take anything they're saying at face value. And the early church was full of people who were ready and willing to twist things, try and place their own agenda or their own ideas over top of the gospel. And so this word apostle, this designation of apostle, was really significant in that it was that ultimate stamp of approval. These men were called and commissioned by Jesus Christ himself into the work of leading the church. The disciples of Jesus were apostles, the ones who walked with him and learned from him. But Paul, Paul never met Jesus during his ministry, so how could Paul be an apostle? Well, many of you know his conversion story in Acts chapter 9. We see the resurrected Christ appears to Paul. He was Saul at that point, on the road to Damascus, speaks with him, blinds him, calls him, converts him. And then Jesus even appears to a witness, Ananias, and says, I've called this guy. This guy has been called by me. He says to Ananias, he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. <laughs> Paul could call himself an apostle because he was called into ministry through Jesus. And he makes sure to establish his authority here. I'm not just some random person. I wasn't elected or brought in by a vote. I'm not here because people think I'm nice or I'm good at speaking, or I have good ideas, or I'm popular, or I'm charismatic. I have been called and appointed and given authority by Jesus Christ himself. And after that first verse, he continues to build his authority. If that weren't enough, that he's been called by Jesus, it's also true that all the brothers and sisters here join me in sending this letter to the Church of Galatia. The other church leaders, their planting church, the sending church in Jerusalem, we agree on this. We speak with one voice here, as Paul is saying this, processing his calling and his message to the church, he can't help but launch into a little gospel message here, the core and foundation of what we believe. Maybe he's kind of pulling himself back a little bit, briefly remembering his manners, working in a little prayer here at the beginning. But maybe, I like this a little bit better, I think he is so captured and shaped by the understanding of his need and the Galatian church's need for the sacrifice of God, that he can't even make it three verses into this thing before celebrating it, before preaching his sermon. 
He says, may God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins. Just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. As angry as Paul might be, as much as he needs to get to the point and begin talking about the Galatian church and how they are missing it, how they've been misled, he can't help but start off talking about Jesus. He throws in one of his favorite lines here. You see it through a lot of his writings. Grace and peace to you from Jesus. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Whenever Paul says this, whenever he uses these two words, it's always in that order. Grace, then peace. That's a whole sermon right there, maybe. Here's the gospel. We have peace because of the grace that we have been shown. Grace has been given to us. There is something broken that needs to be mended in our lives, and we cannot do it. But God's grace accomplishes this for us. And therefore, we can have peace. This is the gospel that Paul is presenting to the church in Galatia. And then this is normally about the place in the letter where we would have some sort of statement of thankfulness for Paul from this group. But instead, he says this. He says, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news but is not good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one that we preach to you. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one that you have welcomed, let that person be cursed. Yikes. Paul, tell us how you really feel. He is passionate. He's so worked up. I don't think there's anywhere else in his writings that he becomes so worked up about an issue. If you miss this, Paul says, you may as well be cursed. If I miss this, may I be cursed. If an angel itself would show up from heaven and try and give you something other than this, curse that angel. And the word there he uses for cursed, it's not a church word. They've really softened it for us in the translation here. The literal translation of this, and I ran it by Aaron. I was like, can I even say this in church? And she figured if it's in the Bible, you can say it. So if you don't like this, talk to her about it. But in the original Greek, he says, may God damn anyone to hell who says anything different than this gospel, who is preaching a different message than the true gospel. Whew. There are a lot of things that we can disagree on, right? Lots of things that the wide church disagrees on. Hymns or choruses, NIV or King James or the message or what it's going to look like when Jesus comes back, right? How we read books like Revelation, what, what creation looks like, how we read books like Genesis, did, did, did Adam have a belly button, right? Like these sorts of questions are questions that can divide the church or questions that we can wrestle over, certainly. Uh, and, and some of those feel very important. And some of them are important. I'm not saying that none of those debates matter. Of course, some of those things we want to think well about and discuss well about. And th those are the sorts of things that Paul often has to straighten out in the letters that he's writing, issues of how the church should run. 
or what their priorities need to be or, or how to pick elders or deacons or pastors or how to do church discipline. These are things that Paul is dealing with, but nothing gets them as passionate as this. This is a far bigger, deeper, more important question than any other theological debate we might have as a community. Paul says this is the gospel. And if you distort it or twist it or get it wrong, no worse fate could possibly befall the church than getting this wrong. And so Galatians is a book concerned with setting the record straight. And it's a gift to the church for that. It's why Martin Luther loved it so deeply. Because Paul doesn't mince words. He's passionately approaching this issue. What is the true gospel? What is the true message of our salvation? And for much of the book, much of what we're going to cover through this series, Paul is looking at other claims or other things that could begin to pull us away. That we might be tempted to add on and stick on and sort of graft on to the gospel should make us pause, right? It's a scary message. And it's true for us today in the church too. The, the church is still at risk of distorting or twisting or manipulating or adding on to the gospel in a way that can lead us gravely astray. So how do we avoid this? How can we make sure that we are holding on to the true gospel? That's what the book of Galatians is about. Identifying the false gospel which can creep into the church and holding fast to the true one. I remember hearing a, a quote about federal agents who work account catching counterfeit currency. And there are some pretty convincing counterfeit bills out there. And it can be very, very difficult to spot the difference. The weight of the paper and the colors can all be matched very, very closely. Not perfectly, but very closely. So how is it that these agents can be trained to make sure and spot the counterfeit bills? You might think that the best way to do this would be to take different versions of counterfeit money and study it. Look where they messed this up. Look where the thickness of this paper isn't quite right. Look where this foil doesn't shine quite like it's supposed to or where the ink isn't quite the right color. But it turns out that the most effective way by far to spot a counterfeit bill is to spend a lot of time with real money. The most effective way to spot a counterfeit bill is to spend a lot of time with genuine bills until you become so deeply familiar with the look and the feel and the touch and the detail of the real thing that if you see bogus money come through, you know it. You recognize it. So what is the gospel? What's the true message? The true statement that we can cling to? What is the real thing that we can hold on to, so that if any other counterfeit gospel would come our way, no matter how interesting or appealing or charismatic it might be, we can spot it for a fake. I heard it described in this beautiful, simple way, set up as an equation. I'm a math guy, so I like equations. Here it is. Salvation equals the grace of Jesus plus nothing. Salvation equals the grace of Jesus plus nothing else. When he died on the cross, he didn't say, I've got a good start on it. Now you guys go. He said, it's finished. It's finished. I've won. It's over. We spend a lot of time in church talking about what it means to live in the church, in the kingdom of God. 
the way that our lives should look, the things that we should be growing towards, the ways that we should treat each other, good habits to develop or ways to think about things. And all that's good and important and valuable. We should be talking about those things. But it's all in response to the sacrifice of Jesus. As soon as we try to add anything onto what Jesus has done for us, to say salvation is 90% Jesus, 10% me. Jesus did most of it. I have some responsibility here. To say that somehow what we do or accomplish or how good we are is the thing that justifies us. We've lost the plot. And so as we go through Galatians, this is that idea that we're going to continue exploring together. And remember, if you have questions about circumcision, talk with Dion. I was thinking about how to end this sermon. I wasn't sure exactly how I wanted to end it, but there's a video that kept coming to mind for me. Uh, one that I see every once in a while pop up on social media or somewhere else, and I cry every single time I see it, and so I figured I'd get you all to cry along with me. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a preacher, it's a pastor. Alistair Begg is his name. He's talking about, uh, out of Ephesians, but some of these same principles, and I think he does just a beautiful job of summing up this principle of what the gospel is and our response to it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit down, We'll play this video, and I'll invite the worship team to come up when the video is done, and then I'll come up afterwards for a benediction. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. What an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you 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 were cussing the guy out with your friend, You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, ne- you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, we, uh, uh, did you? Excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor, Ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, The man on the middle cross said, I can come. (laughs) Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. 
And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God that just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther said most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense that we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. 